My head's in the way. Yeah, I do actually need some more light. Yeah. Hmm? Oh, no. Kelly's going. I can see this is going to be a night like this. I hope you have nowhere to go. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Kelly. That's good. That's good. Thanks. That's, that's better. I didn't have to gather myself. Okay, tonight I want to talk about um, the search for knowledge or where can we find refuge? And at this point of the retreat, coming up on the midpoint, uh, about 20 people are leaving at the end of this week. And for those who are staying, it's still a real sense, kind of, of the retreat's about half over. And I've noticed in quite a few of the interviews, kind of the mind tends to move into a sort of assessment mode, or evaluating, well, how am I doing? Um, Have I got it? It's over and I have to leave, and did I really get it yet? Do I understand it all? Will I ever? How is my retreat going? It's not quite going in the way that I had planned. Haha, big surprise. But this is coming up a lot, and it makes me reflect on how for many years my own practice was, of course, was practicing to be free from suffering. But in some way, if I was asked, I would think it was for understanding. And understanding my mind would translate in a way of some body of knowledge or some specific set of experiences or, or some final explanation that was going to resolve all my questions, all my doubts, everything would make sense. It's really in a way something to have so that there's nothing to worry or wonder about anymore. Some something, you know. And of course, some proof, at least, that we're getting somewhere other than here. Whatever that might be in each of our minds. And of course, as I'm sure you know I'm going to say, um, it's just the opposite. That the closer we look to find this explanation, this body of knowledge, this set of experiences that we can use to satisfy our mind, you know, that we've gotten it, the closer we look for this knowledge, for something concrete, to take refuge in, the more we don't find anything. One of my teachers uh, would say, when you look, you see samsara. No, when, no, I got it wrong. <laughs> he says, when you don't look, you see samsara. When you look, you don't see anything. That's really how it is. This little article, some of you have heard me read this before, to me it's a metaphor of our practice of our search for some knowledge and understanding. It's a science article about the nature of the universe. 
when um, a couple years ago some scientists discovered a new galaxy, the largest galaxy ever detected. And by the way, even on the news last night, they were talking about this. There are a hundred billion galaxies that they know of. A hundred billion. And our galaxy, only one of them has something like a hundred billion stars. It's unthinkable. Anyway, somehow they discovered a new galaxy, the largest one ever discovered, which this one has a hundred trillion stars, 60 times the size of the Earth's galaxy, the Milky Way. Okay, so that just sets the stage. This new galaxy is located in the center of an even larger clump of 1,000 galaxies called Abel 2029. And in studying these galaxies, scientists hope that further study will provide clues to the role played by a mysterious substance called dark matter. Because there doesn't appear to be enough ordinary regular matter in the universe to account for the gravitational forces that would be necessary to clump all these galaxies together. So they propose the existence of vast amounts of invisible matter that eludes detection because it emits no radiation. According to the prevailing wisdom, 99% of the universe consists of this missing mass. (laughs) 99%, which means that what is generally thought of as astronomy actually concerns only a tiny subset of particles that happen to be detectable by the human nervous system. I think it's like that. When we begin to really explore our mind-body process, 99% of it, we don't have a clue what's really going on. The more we look for answers, the more we discover mystery, unknowing. And so what I want to talk a bit about tonight is uh, taking refuge in radical acceptance, radical faith, radical trust. Once I read somewhere, I forget where, a definition of faith as the drive towards that which cannot be described. I really like that takes it out of the realm of definition and intellectual. The movement of heart towards that which cannot be described. And so you'll probably remember when Joseph spoke about faith some time ago and uh, that this aspect of faith first arising in us, which is often called bright faith, that sense of brightness, confidence of heart of mind, almost as if Internally, something lights us up, energizes us. It brings us to explore. It brings us to practice. It's really a wonderful mental state, a wonderful feeling. And it can come from hearing some teacher, from talking to somebody. It can come from being in nature. It can come from an experience of suffering that one somehow 
transcends or transforms into something very profound. I'm sure, maybe not, but at times reflect on the first arising of this bright faith for yourself, because I find that can often inspire to energy and confidence. And of course it fades, but it's not a one-time experience. Even here, you can notice often and often the reawakening of this state of bright faith. I experience it so many times in interviews, talking with people, just seeing the inner light as somebody is opening to a new aspect of how things are. Somebody is letting go of some pain, some long-held idea, some way that suffering is being created. Or when I see the power of metta, somebody's kindness, just the way that one of you can inspire another one of you, incredible dedication you're all putting out. Really, it's a gift for us as teachers to be able to meet with all of you daily as you go through your process. Because even though sometimes bright faith might be the last thing you think is emanating, and sometimes it is the last thing that's emanating, (laughs) but many other times, and more than you'd realize, I get such a hit of, of this inspiration from talking with with each of you. One thing about bright faith, one way that we often um, can misplace it, is that the, the, that first brightness, I feel it's like a reawakening in us of a recognition of truth, a recalling us to our truest nature. And sometimes we take that faith, that bright faith, that lit up place, and instead of seeing it as a calling back to our own truth, that we are an expression of truth, it can be easy to direct it outwards, to turn it into blind faith, faith in the person who inspired it, faith in the teachings. I don't mean that we we can't trust people in teachings, but this blind faith that is, I can only feel awakened and enlivened if my teacher is with me, or if I can somehow hold on to teachings in a certain way. And it's, it's again a looking outside of ourselves, a giving away of our own potential to awaken to truth and saying, I need this other being, this other teacher, this other situation, whatever it might be. And then it turns into blind faith. Uh, Someone told me once about one of her teachers. She said, you know, I trust him so much. If he told me to jump off a cliff, I would do it without thinking. I kind of went, oh. That that could possibly be blind faith. You know, uh, so blind that it doesn't really look to see what's true in each moment. So, Bright faith, never mind blind faith, but bright faith, of course, is not stable. It wavers because it's at first dependent on something outside. What's wonderful about this practice is that as the faith energizes us and gives us the confidence to sit down and look, then through our own personal moment-to-moment experience, 
Bright faith changes or is strengthened by verified faith. This faith meaning confidence in what we know to be true through our own experience. This is what many of us love in particular about the teachings of the Buddha as they are in the Pali Suttas. Very famous line that he said a lot, Ehi Pasako, that's Pali, which translates roughly as, you too come and see. And he said many times, don't believe anything just because I say so, just because someone that you respect or revere says so, and he goes through a long list. He says, but if you hear it, it sounds helpful or good, then come and see for yourself. Try for yourself and see what is true. See what leads to less suffering, what leads to more suffering. So verified faith is what arises out of this seeing what is actually true for ourselves. And something you know from your own experience to be true Anyone telling you otherwise, it just doesn't matter, because you know. Don't get upset about it. You don't get defensive about it. You just know this is true, and I'm sorry you don't know that. Of course, this gets tricky, huh? and that's what I'm going to get into in a minute. It leads me to the radical aspect of faith or trust, because this verified faith so easily, what is true, what my experience tells me is true, so easily becomes faith in what? It can again become faith in something concrete. I'll give you an an easy example, how easy it is to slip from this really radical trust and faith into forming a view, an opinion, and attaching, grasping at that view, and mistaking that for truth, which hopefully that'll make sense by the time I finish this talk. But, for example, you might have an experience in the moment, strong pain, the mind suffering, and just simply with mindfulness, being with it, there's an easing of the mental tension. At the point, the mind goes into equanimity, And maybe the pain completely goes away. And even before the pain went away, there was an ease in the mind. And you know in that moment, ah, there's a real difference between pain and suffering. Physical pain does not have to be mental suffering. And you know that, absolutely, in that moment. It was an intuitive experience, which, of course, our mind will then put into words, a way of describing it to ourselves. So easily, that experience can then be taken, remembered, solidified, and become a view that when pain arises, if I pay attention correctly, the mind will get calm and the pain will go away. So easy, we can make that slip, that, that little movement over from just being open to the experience as it is, just resting in that pain with spacious awareness to the view, if I do it right, my mind will be easy, the pain will go away. And then when, of course, the next time or the tenth time that doesn't happen, 
we start to feel confused or struggling, there's, there's more suffering. And at this point, we've confused verified faith or faith in what we know is true with attachment to a view. And this is very tricky. The Buddha spoke about, in, in speaking of this realm of attachment, that when there's contact, there's feeling of pleasantness or unpleasantness, it leads to craving, wanting, and the next moment it strengthens the wanting into grasping or clinging or attachment. It's just a stronger movement of craving. And he talked about different areas of this, sense pleasures being one, of course. The second area is attachment to views and opinions. And he spoke an awful lot about this. So I'm going to come to it again a little later. I'm going to say, first, what do I actually mean by true radical faith or trust? It's really trust and confidence, not that something particular will or should happen, but that in that truth, that real refuge in the Dharma is found within this moment, with resting within this particular experience, whatever it might happen to be, just as it is. That the faith gives us the confidence that we can truly open, find refuge in this moment, in this experience. And, and the real faith is that we know truth and freedom is only here and never anywhere else. I mean, we forget it, but that's what faith can bring us back to. This radical acceptance, I read somewhere once, radical acceptance is radical acknowledgement of the presence of truth at this very moment. The only thing to do is to do nothing but accept truth in all things, as all things, at all times, in all forms, in all ways. To let go, to accept, it is necessary only to give up your concerns, your ideas, and your fears. I admit that's not so easy. Necessary only to give up your fears. So, what have you been fearing today? Trying to control. Not able or even recognizing its presence to radically accept. Because radical acceptance is this faith to surrender completely into this moment. To live consciously in not knowing not controlling, and not being able to organize things so that it happens the way we think it ought to. And that is scary for us a lot of the time. We definitely want facts, some kind of certainty. You know, if I do this, then that will happen. Or if I'm sleepy, it's because of X, Y, and Z. And if I do A, B, and C, the sleepiness will go away, or whatever. And of course, to some extent, we need some facts. We need some to hear other people's experience. We need some guidance. We need some idea of 
helpful ways to practice, something to go on. No question about that. But when we again begin to mistake ideas, helpful suggestions, or how things might tend to happen in the usual sense, when we mistake any of these for absolute truth, this is the way it is. When we begin to try and take refuge in any of these so-called facts, in any of these ways of practice, we're going to find ourselves suffering. We're going to find ourselves in confusion at some point. Living in not knowing, though, it's very unsettling. And generally, in this culture especially, I find, it's set up in a way to really hide the fact that we don't have a clue what's going to happen in the next moment. Actually, we don't. But our culture is set up in a way that we can really avoid facing this for large portions of time. I was, a couple years ago, I spent three months in India, and it was on reflection when I came back, it was so interesting because something about India doesn't let one take refuge in, if I plan out the day, that's how it's going to be. In fact, after a while I realized whatever I thought was going to happen that day would be the one thing that probably wouldn't happen. So if I thought I'd get up, go here, go to the post office, go have a chai, probably not. Maybe I'd have the chai. That was usually first on the list. But the other things wasn't up to me. And it can be extremely frustrating, and was for quite a while. And then suddenly I realized, hey, this is just how life is anyway, and the only problem is I think I should be able to have my plans work. Give it up. And it was sort of a real, it got to be very delightful, like just dancing and get up and make my plans and then throw it all in the air and see what really happens today. It's fun. It's much more enlivening, you know, much more like I was dancing with life. And when I come back here, and I'm the same way myself, you know, everyone I know has day planners and hour planners, and even more amazingly, most of the time that stuff happens. Like right now, I know where I'm supposed to be almost every day of 1996. And every other year, that's actually happened. I mean, that is, to me, that's more the miracle than anything else. But it can, it really can lull me into this, it feels like security. You know, it feels like, oh, a sense of comfort, a sense of somewhere to rest. I can look in my little day book and know where I was on August 15th and where I'll be next August 15th. My life has some order. All's right in the universe kind of a thing. It seems like a comfort, but really it's a great enforcer of delusion on a big level. Well, the same tendency goes on here in retreat or in our minds on much more subtle levels. I mean, I'm sure you've probably planned where you're going to be every day for 1996 too, but not taking it so seriously. But bringing it down right to here, the way this retreat is structured can also give us a false sense of 
everything's very orderly. We know what's going to happen next. You know, with the bells and the time and the meals are served at the same time every day. If it's 10 minutes late, it's a huge upheaval. You know, why was it so odd to come in here and have pumpkins? Because something's different. After six weeks, something was different in here when you came in because it seems so orderly. And of course, the truth is, who knows what's going to happen in this next moment when you sit down in your next sitting, when you stand up and go to the next walking. It's scary to live consciously in this not knowing. It can be scary if we're caught in wanting security, if we're looking for some explanation, some knowledge to use as a final resting place to take a stand in. And so I'm not saying just intellectually say, okay, now I don't know what's going to happen next and keep reminding yourself and make yourself totally anxious. That's just another view. You don't really have to do anything except keep paying attention because our practice It's a moment-to-moment experience of this fact. It's a practice of radical trust. And that's why sometimes this practice can be so uncomfortable and things can feel so scary. When something you thought, without even knowing you thought how it is, gets suddenly blasted apart by an experience, it's like for an instant there is nowhere to take a stand. I have a friend who described once years ago he had an anatta experience, experience of no self, which many people have. I mean, it's not like you have one and everything's over, but we often have little experiences of no self. They said it was like he went out for a Sunday drive, but then there was nowhere to go home to. Sort of that sense of where's the reference point? And we want so much to have one reference point that we can always look back to, to hold on to. So this radical trust is that our true refuge, our true home, there actually is always somewhere to go home to. But it's in this very moment, in this very experience, that we can discover our true home the radiant nature of heart, of mind. As long as we're looking to some set experience, we're missing our true home. But because this home has no description, no particular ways to recognize it always, that it's within constantly changing experience, it's so hard for us We want to get a handle on it. It's hard to just surrender into this moment with total confidence that this is taking refuge in the Dharma. As our practice continues, and it's happening for everyone here, we more and more are coming in to trust that this is where home really is. But at times, like my friend's experience, or when we begin to lose our reference points, 
it can be extremely unsettling. It's like being in an earthquake, sort of. One time, um, some of us here were teaching and cooking or sitting at Yucca Valley in California. We have a big retreat every spring. And towards the end of this 10-day retreat, I had a pretty, a pretty big earthquake, a 6.1 or something. And it was not, I'd never been in an earthquake before. So the first earthquake part was interesting. I was standing outside in the desert at night, and it was just, it was a little scary, you know, but it was sort of far out to see the ground roll and everything shake. But then these aftershocks, which are really little earthquakes, kept going like every few minutes, every three, four, or five minutes all night and into the next couple of days. And it was a, it, it stopped being really far out and fun pretty quickly. You know, you're just falling asleep, everything shakes. And of course the radio would always say, 35% chance of the big one, you know, <laughs> which is really a big help. So you can't just say it's an aftershock, it might be the big one, so you have to wake up. And, and what was interesting to me was to see how on every level, not just my mind, actually my body felt more, uh, more jangled and upset than my mind, it was like visceral, oh. The body thought it could trust the earth to be solid, to be there. Guess what? No. It was a really interesting experience. And I think, uh, for me, it was very much um, an absolute all-senses experience of the fact that there really is no concrete place to take a stand. The scary part about that was I wanted it to be different, of course. I didn't want this to be happening. I wanted the earth to stay like I always thought it should be. You know, and when it didn't, I suffered. It, it, when we start trying to control the results, when this happens in our meditation, so easily we get into manipulating meditation. You know what I mean, I'm sure. Yeah. Either you've had a really good experience, which immediately the mind translates, this is how it's supposed to be, and I'm doing it right. And then we do everything, we try and uh, recreate every situation that seemed to have an effect on that particular state. The time of day to sit, what you ate for lunch, where you walked, how long you walked, what you're wearing, your posture, how you hold your head, all this, you know, try to get into that good sitting again. Just take three breaths, then let it go, then open to here, and you know, we get it all down. Or just the reverse, of course, if you had an awful experience, try and do everything different from whatever led to that. And without looking at it closely, we really think that we're, we're, we're trying to meditate correctly. We're, you know, we're looking towards truth. But look at your state of heart, your state of mind, when you find yourself involved in manipulating meditation. Is there a sense of confidence, of trust and openness to the moment, to experience? Personally, I've experienced like contraction, a real kind of tightness, a leaning forward, fearful actually, wanting, and actually strengthens the sense of isolation. 
of separateness and quite likely leads into striving, self-judgment, frustration, whatever. There is no room in manipulating meditation to recognize our inner radiance. There's no space to recognize that our true refuge is here because we're so busy trying to recreate whatever idea we have of good meditation that's going to take us to truth. And of course, and we, this is what can drive us nuts, because we all have the opposite experience of this manipulation, the striving, the frustration. And finally, hopefully before we've completely driven ourselves into a tight mass of suffering, at some point you realize, oh, right, just let it go. Just be with things as they are and space opens up. Peace is possible. There's a sense of ease and happiness. And we know that. We all know that. But still so easily we slip out of that knowing. When we're in that space of acceptance, when we are able to surrender with this trust, with this faith, no matter what's happening, we're open again to the wonder, the wonder of ourselves, the wonder of the world. It's when you walk out and how can nature be so beautiful and so fragile and so powerful, so cruel? How can our hearts be so infinitely tender one moment and so unbelievably hardened an hour later? How can each of us be able to bear the immense suffering that each person bears in their own particular life pattern and then turn around and be so joyous at something simple like the chickadees landing? You know, it's really beautiful when we open to the wonder in this way. And that's what this radical trust is the gift that it gives us. There's no one thing we can hold to, but it's the trust that allows us to open into the infinite mystery, the infinite wonder and beauty of life. And I don't mean to be naive or simplistic, that if we open, if we trust, everything from now on will be wonderful and happy, and just nothing bad will ever happen again, you know. Of course, I don't mean that at all. Because again, that we're looking for some result, for some proof. It's easy to relax into the joyous moments. It's very difficult to find this trust when something difficult is happening. I just thought I'd read this from the Buddha. To me, it's an acknowledgement that the difficult is often not what it seems, that even the difficult, when surrendered to, is the opening to truth. This is called, it's from a sutta he gave, and it's called the transcendental dependent arising. Remember on Saturday, Steve talked about the classical dependent origination about how ignorance is the origin of suffering, and those 12 links. 
This is another series of 12 links the Buddha gave that starts from the end point of the first. Suffering is the first link in this dependent origination. So it begins with what's truly difficult, what we would have trouble opening to. And I'm not going to go on explaining each of these. I just want you to hear that suffering can be the causal condition for something quite other. Suffering is the supporting condition for faith. Faith is the supporting condition for joy. Joy is the supporting condition for rapture. Rapture, the supporting condition for tranquility. Tranquility for happiness. Happiness is the supporting condition for concentration. That's right, happiness is the supporting condition for concentration, not striving, tightness, or teeth gritting. Happiness is the supporting condition for concentration. (laughs) Concentration is the supporting condition for the knowledge and vision of things as they really are, which goes on to support disenchantment, dispassion, and the supporting condition for emancipation. Beginning with suffering. It doesn't say get rid of suffering, and then this stuff can happen. I'll write those 12 out and put them on the board. But um, I find that really fascinating. A way, and this is a way that views and teachings can be helpful if it gives us some confidence to again look and see for ourselves. So don't believe it. Look and see for yourself. Can we trust in a particular moment that even in this suffering can be the seed of opening to truth? And you know, often in life, when something difficult happens, and we think, oh, this is horrible, this shouldn't be happening. And often when we look back years later, we wouldn't have chosen it, but it actually led to very beneficial effects. And this happens a lot in my life. Um, just an example, when I got quite sick a few years ago, I mentioned that another night. Um, it made me look more carefully at how I was living my life, and without actually knowing what I was doing that might have contributed to the sickness, by looking more closely and really accepting the experience as it was, it caused me to make some radical changes in how I was living, how I was relating to how I was living, that have been wonderful, and that have led to things I could never have imagined. So you know how we think we can plan our life, plan the next five years, plan our retirement, and we do our best. But I've found that what really happens I couldn't have thought it up in my wildest dreams. And often it's much better than I could have imagined. So for example, I think partly as a result of the sickness and the changes I made, I, I, I now live behind the study center. It's a really cute little cottage that didn't even exist then. And I remember about 10 years ago, what's now the study center, was a farmhouse and the family that lived there uh, their dog used to come up here all the time. She was sort of a part of the staff. So we would house sit for them and take care of their dog when they went away. And I have a very clear memory of sitting in their backyard, which was lovely, peaceful, 
I could never have sat there and said, well, in six years, this will be a study center and I'll be living in a cottage that hasn't been built yet back here. That's what I think I'll try and manifest. Couldn't think of that in my wildest dreams. It's amazing how stuff happens. So we don't really know, but we sure as heck want to know what's going to happen, what has happened, and how to explain it all. This is where we get into grasping at views, clutching at views. The way it's described, grasping at views, is the tendency of mind to think, this is true, this is how it is, everything else is false, every other explanation is not accurate. Okay, that's a little hard and fast, but without putting it quite so clearly, we are doing this all the time. And the Buddha talked quite a lot, actually. A lot of his suttas, he talks about the dangers and suffering that arise from people clinging to views. This is one from the Buddha. For one who is free from views, there are no ties. For one who is delivered by understanding, there are no follies. But those who grasp after views and philosophical opinions, they wander about in the world annoying people. (laughs) Hmm. You thought the Buddha was a sober guy, but he had his funny side. Well, Manya, we're talking about grasping at views. Of course we have to hold views and opinions. We couldn't function in the world. But when we cling to them with that attitude, this is true, everything else is false, it limits our world. It limits our possibilities. We don't even perceive that things could be otherwise. We're so disconnected. Of course, this... There's 10 million examples of this in daily life. We can see that so often, how grasping at views causes so much strife and suffering. Politics is a great example. Next week's election day in this country, and there's not actually any big elections, but I notice for myself there's two particular politicians who I won't name, that if I just see them come on the TV, I get almost nauseating. (laughs) There's no way I can hear what they say with any kind of openness. They could say something really great. All I have to do is see them, and my view is so hardened. This guy is so bad for the country, you know, and I'm right, they're wrong. He couldn't possibly do something beneficial. Cut and dried, finished. And I know I'm probably quite mild because I'm not a very uh, politically active person. Just look what goes on in the rest of the world. But to see how blinding that is, how strong that feeling of, I'm right. And think about the times when you're so sure you're right. How hard is it if someone comes, well, you know, that's a view and an opinion. Can you see the other side? (laughs) Don't tell me that's a view and an opinion. I know. Views can be really strong, so strong that they can cut through all kinds of other experience. For instance, the view of being a particular nationality, being American, 
or a sense of my country, right or wrong. It's kind of a funny story. Uh, A friend of mine who's German told me he took some visiting friends to, in Munich, to this big tourist attraction, the Hofbrauhaus, which is a huge sort of like beer hall. And um, I don't know if Germans even go there. But anyway, all the tourists do. And there's a lot of American uh, soldiers, army people in Germany. So he was there with his friends and some American guys, American army guys, must have been in uniform, got into a big fight and punching and cursing. Really, a, a very physical fight. And my friend saw, like the manager or someone, tip a note, there's an oompa band that's playing along all this time. And he tipped a note to the band, and immediately, without a break, they swung into the Star Spangled Banner. Clearly, this is not a one-time event. (laughs) And as soon as the national anthem started, these guys stopped their vicious fight, stood up with tears running down their eyes, you know, my country, right or wrong. Yeah. really powerful. Being attached to views can hide us from the truth. It doesn't let us see what's really going on. I read um, just recently that in 1988, in the Soviet Union, this must have been after Gorbachev came in but before it broke up, the Soviet authorities canceled all national history exams because they acknowledged that through all the years of lies and uh, changing history to meet the prevailing view of the country, of that particular government, that the actual history had become lost. And so they couldn't, in conscience, hold history exams because they didn't even know what the history was. Interesting. I didn't know that. And, of course, holding to views can lead to enormous suffering, enormous um, violence has been carried out in the world because of uh, attachment to views and the fear and anger that comes up when our views are threatened. Many wars are this, of course. I've been reading lately um, a very interesting history of the American Civil Rights Movement in the south of this country in the late 1950s, early 1960s around Martin Luther King during the time of John F. Kennedy. And uh, I was a a young girl then, so I didn't really know so much about it. But just to see how it was basically a movement, if if you're not American, of coming out of the southern black churches, joined by some whites, uh, trying to break the segregation, because at that time, you know, blacks had to, in, in public places, blacks had to eat in separate places from whites, sit in separate places on the buses, travel. And it was, you know, really mind that that was true, but that's how it was. And so it was a nonviolent campaign to uh, break down the segregation laws by sit-ins at lunch counters, by not using the buses, by um, blacks and whites riding together on interstate buses. 
And it was uh, quite strongly nonviolent, trying to base it in Gandhian principles. And how frightening it was to people who were, to white supremacists who were relying on that separation, who certainly held the view that it was right, that they were superior, but that also that there was so much fear to have that view challenged. And there's all kinds of horrific violence, bombing of churches because the movement was coming out of churches, setting fire to buses that people were traveling on, all kinds of uh, bombing of people's houses, murders, lynchings, and so on. Just at having one's idea of how things should be challenged because the people in the civil rights movement were in no way physically threatening anybody. They were quite committed to nonviolence. The power of views, as Thich Nhat Hanh says, you can kill five or ten people with a gun, but somebody really holding tight to a view, if they get in a position of power, has the power to hurt millions of people. Views are so strong. So that's on the biggest picture. But of course, we have the same tendencies in our minds to manufacture views and explanations of experience, of how things should be. And often we don't recognize them. So are we willing to begin in our practice to truly look? Not to say views are wrong, opinions and explanations are wrong. Of course not. Very helpful. But important to recognize as view, not to mistake an opinion, an explanation, or a view for a totally accurate description of reality. There's no view we can hold to, that we can cling to forever, that will not bring us suffering and confusion. Any view is relative. See, we're back to the shaky ground again. We want some view that isn't relative. Are we willing or can we live without holding to any view at all? This is from Suzuki Roshi, who is a Zen master. He's dead now, but he wrote quite wonderful things. He says, I've discovered that it is necessary, absolutely necessary, to believe in nothing. He's being quite radical here. He says, no matter what God or doctrine you believe in, If you become attached to it, your belief will be based more or less on a self-centered idea. Because, of course, attachment is self-centered. So then you strive for a perfect faith in order to save yourself. You will be involved in an idealistic practice. In constantly seeking to actualize your ideal, you will have no time for composure. I love the way he puts that, because exactly when we've become attached to some doctrine, we start striving to actualize that. We become involved in idealistic practice, trying to get our practice to meet some ideal. And then there's no time for composure. I I really love, uh, in my own practice, looking at how views form how I get attached to them, how I see through them, and how immediately, the next instant, 
another view comes up. It's really amazing. If we can see through them, it's not a problem. But how often here in the morning question period or in something we say in a talk or something we say in instructions, we hear, say, someone else describing something in their practice immediately without recognizing it, a view can come up, oh, is that what's supposed to be happening? My practice isn't like that. Or, oh, that happened to me last week, but now I know that it's supposed to be the way it's happening this week. You know, or last time I sat, the breath was so fine and refined and everything was quiet, and now I'm just being washed in waves of emotion. This is wrong and that was right. Or vice versa. It's really great from the side of getting to listen to so many people because it just makes me see there is no one right way that practice can ever manifest. Everybody's so different. Sometimes right after each other, someone will come who's saying, you know, I'm just having too many emotions. The practice is, I can't practice because there's too many emotions. And someone else will come in and say, I can't practice because there's no emotions. And someone says, I can't feel the breath. There's too many thoughts. Someone says, I can only feel the breath. I wish I had something else happening. And, you know, I'm exaggerating a little, but not that much. And to see how as soon as there's a certain sitting, mindfulness is clear, it's like, ah, that's how it's supposed to be. And then it forms into a view, I'm suffering, I'm struggling, and suddenly let go. Ah, right, that's how it's supposed to be. And to just watch, one view falls, another comes up. One view falls, another comes up. Really, really fascinating to me. Even to have the idea that Practice means it should be intensive. Sometimes we have to so let go of the view we have of practice that we wouldn't even recognize what we're doing as meditation practice. That's a real challenge. And at different times, each of us might meet a place where what's happening is either so powerful or so intense or so scary or something that our practice has to take a form that we couldn't even think of as intensive practice. And generally the tendency is to think, I can't practice, I'm failing. But actually that person might be meeting the most difficult, challenging aspect of living in trust of anybody here. Who knows? There's no one view of practice or anything that we can cling to. We can use them but not to mistake for the truth. Even the teachings of the Buddha, anything we say, notice how when sometimes we say something and it doesn't jibe with your experience at all. It's really different. How, how immediately the mind has to either make yourself wrong or make us wrong. There can't be a possibility that sometimes this is true and sometimes that is true. You know, that's too. No, no, we've got to find out which is right and which is wrong. And often it's not that way. The Buddha, this is another thing I love about him. He's not saying, you've got to only trust me. He says, a very famous simile in one of his suttas, the simile of the raft where he talks of his teaching as a raft, and he says, if you need to get across a turbulent river, it's unsafe on this side, safe on the other shore. You build a raft, you go to the other shore where it's safe. 
But then when you get there, do you say, this raft was so helpful, I like it so much, do you pick it up and carry it then on your shoulder everywhere you go from then on? And of course, all the bhikkhus said, no, no, reverence, or you, that would not be intelligent. And he said, that's right. And it's just like that even with my teachings. You use them, but do not hold to them when you no longer need them. So he says, it's necessary to let go at some point, even of all the true teachings. How much more so of that, the teachings that aren't true? Of course, discerning which is which, that's our ongoing life task. But I think that's lovely. At some point, any view, no matter how much it helps us, has to be let go of. That faith to just rest in how things are without clouding it with description. No view can be held to forever. And of course, that bottom line view of ourselves, that's the one we're constructing most of the time. We've all talked about that a lot. I talked about it last week. It's hard to let go of grasping to that. Now, the view itself can be helpful. I think, personally, it's very functional, going about our daily business, to have the view that I'm me and you're you. And when we're in an interview, to know which of us is reporting on their practice is helpful. You know, I couldn't tell the difference, and we both thought we had to report. It could be confusing. So views are helpful in this world. I'm not saying get rid of them. But it's the clinging. And that one of ourself, when we talk about earthquakes, when we talk about moving earth, this is the one that we really want to hold to. Thich Nhat Hanh again. Because we human beings are afraid of nothingness, we cling to the belief in a permanent, indestructible self. And then we look for explanations why there must be a self. Although we might not do that consciously. But because we human beings are afraid of nothingness, we cling to the belief in a permanent self. But as the Buddha said, look if you, as much as you can. See if you can find, and he says, of course, you won't, but look and see. He says there's no view of self that we can take refuge in, that we can rely on, that will not cause anxiety, exhaustion, sorrow, and suffering. Any view of self, we think we're taking refuge, we think we're looking for solid ground, but clinging to the views only bring us sorrow, exhaustion, and suffering. Again, hearing this and saying, oh yeah, great, that's true, now I'll stop clinging to view of self is just another view. It doesn't, we have an expression, it doesn't cut the mustard, you know, it doesn't really do it for us. But keep looking. See if you can find a refuge in a view, in an idea of self. Anywhere that you can completely rest, that you can hold on to. This is not cause for anxiety, fear, or despair. Beginning to see through our view refuge 
is beginning to see through the fear that lets us hold the views in the first place. So don't accept another opinion, but keep looking, because when we see the suffering that comes about each time we cling to a view and use it to describe our world, and then it doesn't quite work, when we see that suffering, that allows us to let go and again fall into this radical trust. This radical trust that we can take refuge in moment-to-moment spontaneous awareness. It doesn't matter what's happening. With spontaneous awareness, with true surrender, whatever's happening can be our doorway to home. Truth is present under all conditions in these conditions, right here and nowhere else. And this kind of radical trust in the moment, radical faith in the Dharma, taking refuge in the true Dharma is much more is much more ordinary and simple than we might ever be able to imagine or than anything we could manufacture. So I just want to end again with Suzuki Roshi, because to me this is a beautiful description of the state, this moment of radical trust, refuge, the truth that we are truth in this moment. So it's a little bit long, a couple paragraphs. While you are practicing, you may hear the rain dropping from the roof in the dark. Later, the wonderful mist will be coming through the big trees. And still later, when people start to work, they will see the beautiful mountains. But some people will be annoyed if they hear the rain when they're lying in bed in the morning because they do not know that later they will see the sun rising from the east. If our mind is concentrated on ourselves, we have this kind of worry. But if we accept ourselves as the embodiment of the truth, as Buddha nature, we will have no worry. We can think, now it's raining, but we don't know what will happen in the next moment. By the time we go out, it may be a beautiful day or a stormy day. Since we don't know, We appreciate the sound of the rain now. This kind of attitude is the right attitude. If you understand yourself as a temporal embodiment of the truth, you will have no difficulty whatsoever. You appreciate your surroundings and you appreciate yourself as a wonderful part of Buddha's great activity, even in the midst of difficulties. This is our way of life. We appreciate ourselves as a wonderful part of Buddha's great activity, even in the midst of difficulties. This is our way of life. So let's sit for a few moments. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.